The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message. Thank you, thank you. Well, good morning. Um, I'm going to reiterate, happy Holy Week, happy Palm Sunday. If you want to get really official, happy um, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem Day. Yeah, there you go. Because um, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate Palm Sunday. We celebrate uh, the incoming king. We celebrate this idea that Jesus is more than just some figure in history, that Jesus is much more. And so, happy Palm Sunday. As we begin today, um, it's funny, y'all. We just had this, this great Chi Alpha retreat this past weekend. Um, and at that Chi Alpha retreat, as I was preparing for this message, the, the two messages, the one that I preached last week and the one that I'm going to preach today, have some very similar ties in there. Uh, last week, um, I preached about 1 Kings chapter 18. It was verse 17. It talks about this showdown between the prophets of Baal and the prophet Elijah. Um, and in that <clears throat> message, we looked at one singular statement. It was, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If God is God serve him. And so we talked with the college students about how if God is God, then obviously he's the one to be worshiped, right? If God is God, he's the one that we should follow. And therefore, if God is God, there are all of these implications. We sacrifice ourselves on his altar so that we can better serve him. We give of our time, our talent, our treasure, all of these things so that God can be glorified. If God is God, then we serve him with all we have. And then today I come to this message and I'm starting to prepare. And as I am, um, I look at Matthew chapter 11. Now you're saying, Pastor Ben, wait a minute. Like I've looked at the Bible and I'm pretty sure Palm Sunday is like towards the back of Matthew, not towards the middle. Uh, well, we've been going through this study of, of Matthew. And as I was looking at Matthew chapter 11, and as I was looking at Matthew chapter 21, which is where Palm Sunday, that sermon would come out of, I'm going, wow, I see so much similarity. They're asking the same question. And it's a question that harkens all the way back to what I preached last weekend. And so as I'm preparing for this message, I'm looking at the two of them and I'm going, oh, I've got, I've got to just continue on just a little bit in our Matthew study. I've got to go to chapter 11 first, and I've got to ask you a question that a really spiritual guy asks. And then I'm going to ask you the same thing, and we're going to look at all of this and try to tie it all in together. And so that, that question, and actually there are three of them if you want to look at them, uh, those questions are, number one, is Jesus the one? Number two, is Jesus worthy? And then lastly, what do I do with all of that? And so we're going to look all throughout this passage, and we're going to find the answers, hopefully, to those questions today. Would you all do me a favor, though, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? As is our custom in the church, we stand for the reading of the Word of God. And so, if you would stand to your feet, we'll be in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And it says this, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Are you the one? Who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You may be seated. And so as we look throughout this passage, I was actually talking to my my buddy Hunter a few weeks ago, and uh, he had gotten a hold of this teaching uh, by Andy Stanley. And in it, Andy Stanley said, hey, we have too many points in all of our messages. If there's not one point to your sermon that everybody remembers, you've done something wrong. And so I have apparently carried that with me for weeks and weeks and weeks now. I did it last week when I preached at the retreat. I'm doing it today because really we're going to focus on one thing. And then out of that branches everything else. Is Jesus the one? And so, as we look through this passage again, as we break it down, we have 11.1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. Instructing them in what? Well, he was sending them out to go preach the gospel themselves. And so, he's giving them some instruction. And Pastor Chris has been talking about that for several weeks now, about how persecution will come, but we have no fear. And, and Jesus says that whoever receives, as last week we talked about, the, um, receives me, receives him who sent me, and all of these things. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples and all of the ways that he wants, all of these things that he wants them to know, because they're going to go out and preach, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. As we look through that, there's actually a parallel story in Luke chapter 7. Now, I'm not going to turn there, but I'm just going to tell you some of the events that happen. When Jesus goes out to preach and teach, there are several pretty significant things that happen. Um, one of those is that he runs into a centurion servant. Actually, the centurion servant, he doesn't run into him. The centurion servant comes to find him. And he says, Jesus, my master, has sent me to you because one of his servants whom he loves is gravely ill. And so Jesus says, well, let's go. You know, well, I've, I've healed other people. Let's go heal this guy too. And so Jesus is on his way, and, and the, the centurion, he sends out another servant. And he makes it to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, you don't even have to come. He said, I'm a... I'm a man who has authority, um, and I have people who are under my authority, and so I command one, and he goes, and the other to come, and he comes, and so he's like, if you would just command this man to be healed, he would, and that's what happens. Jesus doesn't even have to go to see this person in the flesh. This man is healed right from that moment, and then as Jesus is passing through this little town called Nain, he comes upon a funeral procession. And as he sees this funeral procession, it says his heart is moved or he has compassion on this widow whose son had passed away. Now, the significant thing about that is it's doubly significant because you have a widow, number one, who has no husband, and now she has no son. And in those days, if you had no son and no husband, you had nothing. You couldn't work as a woman and earn income and own land and all that kind of stuff. And so um, there were ways to make it by, but they were very bad ways to live. We'll just call it that. And so this woman had nothing. And Jesus sees her and has compassion and actually raises her son to life. They're carrying him out in a funeral pyre, and he walks up and gives her son back to her. When Jesus goes out and he teaches and preaches, don't, don't miss the fact that there are very significant events happening around that. And people take notice, right? Now, think about this for just a second. If we have funerals today, like they did back then, and Pastor Chris walks up to this funeral procession, and they're carrying this dude out. You know, you're a pallbearer. There's like six of you, and you've got the casket, and you're walking through the middle of town. Pastor Chris is like, get up. And the dead guy gets up. People be talking, right? 
People be talking. And that's what happens here. People take notice. And so, it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, the disciples of John report all these things to him. Now, that is John the Baptist. They report all these things to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist sends two of them to ask the question that we find in verse 3. So let's continue on. It says, verse 2, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, people are talking. They're talking to John the Baptist. Uh, when people, when, sorry, let's try that all again. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, there we go, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? He asks such a significant question because it's a question that we still ask today. Is Jesus the one? Is Jesus the one we've been looking for? Is Jesus the one the world's been looking for? Is Jesus the one that is worthy to be served? Who is Jesus? We're actually going to be talking more about that next week in Easter Sunday. Who is Jesus and why would we serve him? Is Jesus the one? And so, as they come to this question, did you know that this question is actually kind of a, um, a hotly debated topic among scholars? If you go back even for hundreds of years, scholars have been talking about, why would John the Baptist send two disciples to ask this question? Was it for him? Or, as some would say, was it for them? Was it for John the Baptist himself? Or was it for John the Baptist's disciples? And you know, if I am honest, I fell into the first camp. I was in the camp for the, long, for the longest time that John the Baptist was asking for himself. If you look through some of this, you know, uh, it says that if you look in other places that at this point John the Baptist is in prison, um, Jesus and his disciples roam free. Uh, it says that he sends two of his disciples in the book of Luke um, on his behalf. And then verse 6 makes this very strange statement. We'll skip ahead to that. We read it just a minute ago. Verse 6, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's what Jesus tells the disciples of John. And so when you think about that, it sounds like John is having kind of this lack of faith moment. But is that the case? It all ties back to who is Jesus. Is he the one? Now when you look at the life of John the Baptist... I believe that now, especially, um, I believe he doesn't fall into the camp of having lost faith. But I will say this, I believe that that question must be answered. And so if we are to look at that question and we are to look at John the Baptist and his faith, not only do we see the question, but we see a response. You see, Jesus demands a response, and I bet I stole that from one of Pastor Chris's sermons, because I've heard him say it multiple times. Jesus demands a response, and we're going to be looking at that as we kind of go throughout the rest of this study. There's this guy, his name's John Gill. Uh, he, uh, he wrote an expositional commentary on the Bible, and the reason why people kind of know who John Gill is is because of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, though, came 100 years after John Gill. And so when you read the commentaries of John Gill, John Gill was the guy who was preaching the church that Charles Spurgeon would take over a hundred years later. John Gill, he goes through and he writes this expositional commentary. You can find it for free on BibleStudyTools.com. Um, there's my little promo for you. And in his commentary in 11.2, he believes that John sent two of his disciples, actually he believes who might be the most prejudiced against Christ, to ask this question. Now, why would that be? Remember that John the Baptist is in prison 
and he's about to be beheaded. And it says about John the Baptist that he was full of the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Matter of fact, if you look at uh, Luke uh, chapter 2 and 3 there, um, when he, uh, he's in the womb and Elizabeth sees Mary, the mother of Jesus, he's the kid, the baby who leaps in the womb, right? Um, at the entry of the Blessed Virgin. Um, he's the one who has been full of the Spirit from the beginning of his life, and so he's the one that comes to make the way for Jesus. Matthew, or, uh, John Gill would say in that Matthew eleven two um, is actually about the disciples of John the Baptist for a few reasons. He would say that um, the increase of Jesus' followers and the decrease of John's would lead to John the Baptist's disciples being just a little bit jealous. And actually, if you look at John, not John the Baptist's book of John, but John the Apostle's book of John, chapter 3, John makes a very bold statement about this. He says that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. If you put yourself in the place of the disciples of John the Baptist, you actually have to feel kind of bad for them. Um, kind of had that place last night. Last night, we were over at Hunter's house, and we were playing Risk. Anybody ever play Risk? Anybody? Well, in Risk... You have to conquer the entire world, right? It's all about world domination. And in risk, as you do from time to time, you need an ally. It's hard to conquer the world by yourself, especially considering they only give you so many of these little tiny army guys, like you just don't have enough. And so we're, he's looking at me right now. And so we're playing risk, right? And I feel bad, y'all. I'm preaching this message. I'm about to tell something on myself. I apologize. But we're playing this game, and Hunter the whole time has been working with me. He's been like, you need to attack Dina. Because Dina, my lovely wife, is very vicious when it comes to games. She's one of those people, sorry to throw you under the bus. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you right now. If you ever play a game with my wife, Dina, just know that she's going to be that quiet person who's really sweet. And then at the last minute, she's just going to cut you. When we play... That's right. When we... When we play uh, Mario Kart, she's the person who you're like in first place and you're getting ready to cross the finish line and at the last second, turtle shell. She's one of those people. So Hunter's like, hey, you have got to help me beat Dina or she's going to wipe us all out. And the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, Team Burnett, Team Burnett. But I didn't tell him that. And then the whole time I'm also sitting there going, I have to preach tomorrow and this game can go on for 12 hours and we have got to finish this thing. And so I have this like mental deadline in my head of 8.30. At 8.30, I'm going to make whatever decision it takes so that I can go home and finish just the last little bit of my prep for sermon tomorrow, right? That's what's going on in my head. And so it gets to 8.30 and I look at Hunter and he has hat, like he is dividing the map all down the middle. And I look at Dina, and she has all of North America, and I have most of Asia and Australia. That was, that was a, that was, that's a cool thing if you've ever played Risk. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I have almost all of Asia. What do I do? Do I betray my wife or my buddy? Because I have to betray one of them, right? Pastor Ben has got to lie and cheat. Not cheat, I didn't cheat, but Pastor Ben has got to hurt somebody's feelings. In the game of risk, I have to choose the lesser of two evils. Not really. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I did. And I chose wisely. I chose my wife, y'all. That's just that's the way it is. Love you, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's what John the Baptist's disciples are going through at this particular moment. John the Baptist's disciples have been faithful to John the Baptist. And if you think about it for just a second, John the Baptist, he lives... What some would consider, I never thought about this, by the way, until I read John Gill. He leads a more holy life than Jesus does because Jesus eats with publicans and sinners. 
John the Baptist, he lives out in the wilderness dressed in like camel hair and eats locusts and wild honey. Jesus, though Jesus had no place to lay his head, if you're a disciple of John the Baptist, you're thinking he ain't eating locusts and wild honey. He's eating with publicans and sinners. The disciples of John the Baptist were a little jealous, and we know that because of the gospel of John. And so notwithstanding all they'd heard and seen, they were not easily persuaded as they remained loyal to the person who's been discipling them this whole time. And so John Gill reports that it was for the sake of his disciples that he sends these people. As John knew probably in his heart he was about to die. And all evidence in John's life points to the contrary. If you look at John chapter 3, verse 22, let's just read it real quick. John chapter 3, verse 22 says these words. thought I had it marked and I don't. Hey. John 3.22 has these words. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Now a discussion arose, verse 25, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to him you bore witness. Look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing, unless it's given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Are y'all hearing John's heart now? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus. The one who is bringing in those disciples, they are the bride, and he is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now what? Complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Why do we read all that? We read all that because John the Baptist sends his disciples knowing that they are going to get something better than him. John the Baptist sends his disciples knowing that he is about to be gone and these disciples are going to need Jesus. John the Baptist sends them to a better Messiah than himself, for he is not a Messiah at all. And so they ask the question, is Jesus the one? And a response is demanded of them. What do we do with that question? If Jesus really is the one, how do I respond? Well, if we look at chapter 11, again, of Matthew, verse 4, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus answer the question, are you the one or are we waiting for another Jesus' response would say this. He says, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Hmm. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. What do they... Actually, the Bible says, what do they hear and see? What do they hear? They hear the very word of God. Did you know that Jesus, not only does the gospel of John liken him to the word of God, but... Jesus is actually quoting some scripture there just a little bit. If you go back and you look at Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says this about Jesus. It says, y'all, I did a bad thing. I should have wrote all these down. I didn't. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says this. It says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness streams in the desert. If you look, Dill, it looks like you've got it. If you look at 
Isaiah 61, verse 1. Help me out, my friend. That way I don't have to look it up. Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says this. <laughs> there we go. That's verse 10. You have verse 1 up there for me, Dill? No? Okay. Isaiah 61, 1 says something. Let's just flip to it. It says something. It does. I promise. It says something. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Gospel of, the gospel of, not the gospel, the, the book of Isaiah gives us a very interesting and wonderful picture of Jesus himself long before Jesus ever came on the scene as we would know him to be. Isaiah tells us that Jesus is going to come and bind up the brokenhearted. So what, does the, what do the disciples of John hear? They hear the word of God preached to them by Jesus himself out of a passage that is about Jesus himself. What do they hear? They hear all of these things. And what do they see? They see exactly that. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus cleanses the leper. Jesus gives sight to the blind. So who is the one to come, right? They say, are you the one to come or should we wait for another? Well, let's look at one more Isaiah passage and then we'll move on from there. Isaiah chapter 40 says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now this is actually about John the Baptist, this part here. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He is the one who did that. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now look at verse 10. It says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What does the Bible say about Jesus? It says that he is the soon coming king and the shepherd who will lead his people. The shepherd who will care for the lost lambs of God. Jesus comes to do that very thing. And lastly, he finishes by saying, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's interesting that Holy Week, we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus. And as Pastor Chris said, that triumphal entry is where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the very people who cry, Hosanna, God save us, are the same people who would cry later, crucify him. Those very people who would welcome in this king, who would deliver them from Rome, is the very same group that would deny him at his lowest moment. You see, Jesus requires a question. Is he 
really who he says he is. Jesus requires a response, and that is what we come to as we think about Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, when we look at the Matthew 21 passage, right? Let's flip over there just real quick. When we look at the the passage about the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, if we start in verse 4, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet long before Jesus ever came on the scene, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, Jesus would have probably taught this to the disciples, or they would have never known to put this passage in there, more than likely. Jesus would have probably talked about this at some point, and then he would have sent his disciples on to go and get a colt. Dean and I were talking this morning in the car. How did the disciples really know? How did the people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem really know that he was the coming king? Why would you honor Jesus on the road by taking off your cloak, this thing that kept you warm at night, this thing that was actually really important to you. See, we have all these clothes, right? They did not. In their their day, they had one set of clothes, maybe two. If you were a rich person, you had three or four. And so why would you take off such a precious thing that you didn't just go to Walmart and buy, but took you years and years to get, why would you take this cloak off and honor Jesus with it? Why would you cut palm branches and wave them at Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem? Why, and this is the really crazy part if you think about it, why would you shout Hosanna in front of a group of Roman soldiers? Because the road into Jerusalem, guess what's there? The garrison of Roman soldiers. Why would you shout Hosanna in front of a worldly group of people who hate you and want to kill you because they don't like your message. Because Jesus demands a response. Jesus demands a response. It's, it's funny if you look through the passages... Uh, in one place, once you finish this, actually, if you look at the end of 21, when they say, who is this guy who's riding in? Who is this? Verse 11, it says, the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. If you look at the book of Luke, it says, this is the king, or I think it says king. I don't remember. Anyway, um, it, but if you look at all of the gospel accounts of the triumphal entry, the point is it has a different thing listed in every one of those. Everybody had kind of a different opinion, but everybody knew this. Jesus demanded a response. And that's what happens today. Is Jesus the one in your life? Because I can assure you, he demands a response on this Palm Sunday. We're about to take communion, and in this church, when we do, we believe in open, open communion, and yet at the same time, the Bible tells us that when we take communion, we are doing it in remembrance of him. And so when we take communion, we do so Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, that could be you today. Why don't we give communion, or why do we ask you if you don't believe in Jesus to let communion pass by you? Because you can't take communion in remembrance of Jesus if you don't know what he did for you. Well, here's what he did. Jesus, knowing full well he was going to die, knowing full well that even the people that cried Hosanna would later cry crucify him, Knowing that fully, Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for the sins of you and me. When I readied myself to preach this message, it's 
it's funny that in times past I would I, you know Easter's coming you know that the same message is going to be preached every Palm Sunday and every Easter Jesus is coming and Jesus is coming out of the tomb right those are the messages and you know you're going to hear it every year time and time again and used to before this message really meant something to me used to when I would preach it I would be struck by the repetition of it well the more I preach it and the longer I'm a Christian the more it means the more it means in my heart of hearts the more it strikes me that Jesus is Lord and I was a sinner strikes me that Jesus didn't come just for good people he came for wretched people like me who lied and hated and messed over my buddy in a game of risk and so many more things Jesus died for my sins so that I could be with him forever and that's what he does for you as well who is Jesus he is Savior what does he demand? Everything. He demands your allegiance and your life. He demands that you're a living sacrifice for him. And guess what? It's the best thing you could ever do. But Jesus demands a response. Jesus demands a response. And so today as we come to our time of altar service, if you're sitting there and you're going, man, I want to know about this Jesus. Come up here. Pastor Chris is going to be up here. Hunter's going to be up here. We're going to have all kinds of people up here. Come up here and ask him, hey, who is Jesus? How can I make him Lord of my life? How, how do I give him everything that I have? It's actually a lot easier than you think. And sometimes it can be hard. Sometimes it can demand more than you would ever know you should give. And yet, it is so worth it. Amen? If you're sitting there today and you're going, gosh, I just, I just want to be alone with this. Or I want to be at the altar and celebrate the fact that the Lord came for me. Guess what? You can do that too. So many times we, we preach altar services and we're so somber, but you can come and celebrate the fact that the Lord was good to you at the altar. What I urge you to do is come. Celebrate the Lord. Invite Him to be your Lord if He's never been that for you before. Let Jesus do the work. Amen. Can I pray for you? Would you stand to your feet? Heavenly Father, we come in the mighty name of Jesus. And we thank you that you are the one worthy of worship, worthy of praise. You are the one, O oh God. You are the one, O oh God, who would make a way where there was no way. And so, Father, what I ask for all of my brothers and sisters who are here, is I ask that you would bless them with help and grace and healing and peace and all of the things that escape us at times. All of the things that come with your good nature. And Father, I also pray that you bless them with boldness, that they would be willing to take a message to a world that may not like it. And so, Father, we come and pray that whatever needs to happen in this time, that we would be bold enough to let happen. God, if it is to celebrate you, Father, we celebrate you. If it is to come and accept you as Lord of our lives, may that be the case as well. But whatever the case may be, may our hearts be open to your work. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray.
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.